Hello, listeners, and welcome to Area of Expertise, a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition podcast where we cover all things D&D. From the massive worlds you build to the heroes you play, AoE has you covered. Happy listening! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Area of Expertise podcast, where we talk about all things Dungeons & Dragons, from world building to character creation. Today, I have Devin and myself. Today, we're going to talk about a little bit about world building and what it takes to uh, put together your own homebrew campaign, starting from scratch. So, I have a lot of experience with um, building my own worlds, basically from the ground up, and... Um, Devin, I know that you have a lot of experience in this aspect, too. Uh, what is usually the first thing that you go to when you ask yourself, okay, I want to make a world, what do I do first? Um, yeah, I, I do have a lot of experience. I've run uh, quite a few games, and in every one, um, I've kind of made the world completely different. Like Every campaign that I've run has a different world. Um, the first thing that I kind of think about when I'm making the world is um, what do I want the themes to be and um, how the people would interact with uh, kind of the theme and uh, the focus of the campaign. Okay, so you don't start from like a what's the conflict kind of standpoint. Well, that, that too, like the, the conflict, the themes, the plot, okay. progression. Um, uh, so how important is it to you to get sort of like the party playing in your campaign? About how, how important is it to you to get their interests in mind before jumping into the world building process? Um, I've kind of adopted uh, recently that it's the most important thing. I've really shifted towards the ideology of, um, as it should be, that every game is about the players, like, almost entirely. And you're there to facilitate their fun. So, um, really having a session zero where you... Uh, kind of after you've given yourself a little bit of locale um, you kind of get the skeleton of it first and then you have a session zero where you're like hey everybody um, here's everything here's everything that I have so far what do you guys want to do and then you facilitate from there yeah I've definitely made that mistake of spending several days making a campaign and then you show up and you deliver this big exposition and everyone's kind of like on Twitter yeah. or like, eh, whatever. But one of the worst feelings as a DM is sitting there being like, oh man, nobody cares about all this stuff that I've put a lot of hard work into. But you also have to remember that more often than not, um, the people that are there to play in your game have also put in a lot of effort in, for their characters. So if you're not uh, facilitating their characters and trying to give them payoffs in your story they're not going to be interested in what you put work into either. Oh yeah, that's totally true. Uh, a lot of DMs don't think about, like especially new ones, don't really get the uh, the attachment that some players can get to their character. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes a character dying can be devastating. Yeah, it, it really can. Uh, some people get really attached to their characters and if they die, um, if they die in a way that is not at all um, in a way that pays off what they've done so far, it can be really, it can it can almost be campaign ending. That person might not want to even come back. Oh yeah, especially with like new players. I feel it's super important with like uh, players who have never gone through a whole campaign or even like half of a campaign. That first character that they make, they really put a lot of themselves into. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like killing them off is like killing their own person off. Yeah. And it's also the the first experience really matters. Oh yeah. Because at that point, you decide if, if they're going to pick up another campaign. Mm -hmm. If they want to be like, oh, I didn't realize that this is what D&D &D was. Like, just getting attached to something and then kill, getting it killed off. Like, I don't, I don't really want to play this game anymore. Oh, like, yeah. Um, so on the on the topic of, like, um, talking about your party, like being a party-centric campaign, um, what is the importance of knowing your party composition going in? Knowing your party composition really sculpts um, the campaign as it goes. Uh, because just as you're trying to figure out where you want the story to go, um, your players are also figuring out um, how they want to play their characters, what their motivations are, 
So um, let's say, um, well, especially true for like if you have a warlock in your party, if you have a cleric in your party. Oh yeah. Uh, much less recently, uh, paladins because they've kind of shifted paladins away from being beholden to any specific deity and more to ideals. But uh, still, those characters and those classes are inherently tied to the world. So you need to have those things fleshed out to give them their full experience. Especially with like warlocks. Mm-hmm. Um, up until recently, in, uh, in actually the, the campaign that you're running, um, I just very recently built a warlock. I never played a warlock in a campaign more than like a, a, like a one-off. Mm-hmm. So having that kind of omnipresent... Uh, patron there that can show up and meddle in your campaign at any time um, can really start to um, bend the rules a little bit for what your party might see as the rules at the time. So, like, you could be, like, uh, clearing out a cave full of goblins in some hillside and suddenly this tentacle monster appears to you and wants you to do something that maybe you're not super aligned with. And it also doesn't even have to be something that you understand. Uh, Warlocks are my favorite class. I should get that off uh, right now. A little bit, of, little bit of a bias. I have a little bit of a bias. They're they're my favorite class to play. They're my favorite class to DM for. It's just they're so interesting inherently. They're a role playing class. Okay. So like, what when when you say like a a patron might give you a task that you don't understand? Uh, what would be like an example of that? Do you think most commonly? Um, you'll be given tasks that you don't understand by uh, great old ones, which in this context are uh, Lovecraftian, Cthulhu, fourth and fifth dimensional beings that you already don't understand. They could be like, hey, um, in some way, I need you to get this pen from right here and I need you to put it there. It could be as simple as that. Why did my patron want me to do this? I don't know, but I'm going to do it. The great old ones really do work in very mysterious ways. And then it's like eons later, the fact that you put that pen there set off the chain of events. They butterfly effect. Oh, yeah. It's like it's it's almost like having an in-world dungeon master. Yeah, basically. It's it's kind of a conduit from dungeon master to uh, player. It's because there's the, there's the thing of like, you can always use NPCs to tell your characters like certain story pertinent things, right? Yes. It's much different if something that could immediately snap them out of existence mm-hmm. tells them to do something. Yeah, something when something so powerful that it can erase you tells you to do something, you generally do that. And having good NPC interactions, and I'll, I'll even include um, warlock patrons in NPC interactions, even gods. Um, those interactions can like really heighten the um the interest in a game and uh speaking of gods so uh the the cleric class is very dependent on what god they worship it's how they channel their power it's sort of um it uh, kind of affects what path they choose in a way Mm -hmm. um and i understand that you're very much a god maker i really enjoy making pantheons because there's just so much of the world that goes into it uh, you kind of, well, for my most recent campaign, I started off with the Pantheon because from the Pantheon and kind of the lore behind that, I was able to build like the creation story and why everything is the way that it is. Um, so when you make your Pantheon, uh, why are these gods here? Um, how involved are they in the mortal affairs? Um, sometimes it can be heavily um, interactive, like uh, like Greek and Roman-based mythology. Where they literally manifest where, before yeah, the players. Where they literally manifest and cause issues. Thanks, Zeus. <laughs> um, like my campaign right now, they're very involved. Ah, uh, yeah. So, in, in kind of an example of that. So, um, for those listening, I am but a humble player in... Devon's campaign. I like I mentioned earlier. I'm the warlock. Um, very recently, we have gotten into a sort of um, interdimensional weather mishap, where the climate of the entire region is being 
um, dictated by the actions of players that we are currently not playing, but we have played in the past. So it's kind of an example of, as a dungeon master, how deep you can take the decisions of the players into your world. Well, uh, we had kind of reached a general consensus that the party beforehand that you were playing had gotten themselves into some really deep stuff, and uh, half the party didn't make it out of the last encounter that they had, so the other half decided that uh, they would retire those characters with the events that had um, that had occurred, and uh, that their new party would be directly affected by whatever came next. So it's it's very much a like a, a not like a trans-dimensional, but like in our transgenerational. Yes. Like, like your your characters that you're playing now existed while those ones were doing whatever they were, but now you're actually playing them. <laughs> now you just inhabit this body. So it's a different experience. That's very interesting. So when you design a pantheon, so I've never designed a pantheon myself. Mm -hmm. I always go for the the kind of like Forgotten Realms, yeah. kind of cookie cutter ones. Those are the ones and, that I know the best. And they are interesting. The, the Forgotten Realms deities are interesting, but uh, I find that I have a lot more attachment to my world if I've made it myself. And when you say that you... You mentioned before that you design your campaign from the ground up. Do you also design new pantheons for each world? Or is it kind of a... a the pantheon just kind of uplifted and changed a little bit? Um, yeah, uh, the campaign that I'm running right now is an entirely new pantheon uh, from scratch. Um, the last couple campaigns that I have run were different. Um, I can't really remember if they were the same. So um, I had kind of built the pantheon from scratch in this campaign, um, entirely new from the pantheons that I've had in the past. Um, and I, I built it uh, much more with the mindset of uh, they, they would be directly causing and being affected by how the campaign um, ended up churning out. Okay. So do you, do you consider when you have your, um, your pantheon more involved in your world, is that sort of like a, a more high magic, low magic kind of thing? Or is it completely separate from the world itself? Uh, it can be, but generally, if you're having super powerful beings um, interfering with mortal affairs, the power level is going to be pretty high. Those gods are going to be directly interacting with those people. Like, uh, think about the Greek pantheon. If those gods never manifested themselves, you'd never have heroes like Hercules and uh, Perseus and like all those really powerful, well-known heroes. They wouldn't they wouldn't be there because they're there directly because of the gods interference. Oh yeah. So you kind of have these, these, uh, magic gifts from above, yeah. like in these just ordinary people. Mm -hmm. When, when you're kind of designing a world with that high magic in mind, um, do you just divvy out magic to, to everyone? Like how, how common is like a magic item? Like a, a ring of, like a ring of protection, are you just going to find that at any sort of cornerstone store or... Well, a ring of protection is pretty low, low tier magic, so um, you could probably find that in most places. Uh, it kind of depends on how central you want your magic items and uh, magic to be accessible. Like in the campaign that I have right now, before a magical disaster, which we might get into later, um, magic was very abundant. Um, the capital of magic had its own interdimensional college of wizards that were always researching and always figuring out new ways to uh, work with stuff. So magic was readily accessible, like almost all the time. And uh, that could be the campaign that you want to run. Um, or it might not. Uh, if you do want to run things like that, just note that you're going to have to challenge your players a lot more because they will have a lot more to challenge you with and uh, some things might not work out the way that you want them to and you might not have these epic moments if the uh, if the players can just be like well I uh, I banish it yeah so the thing about high magic is you can really tailor your entire world around it um, one of the campaigns I'm running right now with a lot of uh, sort of like 
newly uh, acquainted players. It's a lot of people that either haven't played Magic, not Magic, I'm thinking the wrong Wizards of the Coast game. A lot of high magic. <laughs> uh, a lot of the players that I have um, haven't played D&D in maybe three or four years, or they just haven't played at all. Um, so I kind of threw them into this very whimsical high magic. Like, y you walk down to the local Adventurer's Guild and there's an eighth level wizard just yeah. chilling out, you know, writing down in his scrolls and our player characters are maybe level two. Mm -hmm. So they get these, like, weird interactions between people who are much more experienced mm -hmm. and they kind of have like a goal to shoot for almost yeah and those npc interactions with a lot more uh powerful characters uh can really lead to um like an easy caveat to give quests from oh yeah like uh like the high level person uh can be like hey uh i've discovered this thing or uh i need you to do this because blah 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 like uh, they're they're probably bound to be much more knowledgeable about the world and more apt to give you things to do. There's always the question of like, well, well, why is this high level wizard sending me a ragtag little like level three barbarian to retrieve and that's like, a, a magic dagger? Or that's a little bit of suspension of disbelief too. Like uh, if you want to go with it like that, um, and you have players that don't really question that, like I've I've found myself in many campaigns that I've played in being like, well, why am I doing this when this obviously 20th level wizard could just do it themselves? Like, that that happens sometimes, but um, at the end of the day, you kind of just take it as it is sometimes. Like, the way I look at it is, like, why would such a, a, such a, a high, like, a very powerful wizard trouble himself with such a petty task when he can just pay some you know, uh, tavern-skipping adventurers to go do it for him. And if they die, you know, whatever. You find the next adventuring party and give them the quest. Well, that can that can bring up some, um, some good opportunities to flesh out some really good NPCs. Like, uh, so why is this high-level wizard asking you to do this? What uh, what investment does he have in you? Like, uh, what's he been doing? Why is he not doing this himself? So what what is he not telling you? Yeah, what's he not telling you? And that it, it could it could bring up more intrigue later on. Like like maybe the wizard is bound to a like a, a magical stone and he can't move it. Yeah. So he can like he's on house arrest. You get the wizards. Uh, you get the uh, Fantastic Beasts uh, <laughs> lock in here. Like, well, I can't fight him myself. We've made a pact. Like it's it's actually not that bad of a uh, a concept if you execute it properly. Exactly. the 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 worst thing you can do is not sound sure in yeah. your own ideas. No matter what you're doing as a DM, sound confident in what you're saying because they will believe it, no matter how ridiculous it may sound. Now, you can say something, and be confident in it, and they'll take that at face. They can take that at face value, but later on you might have to flesh out that statement a little bit because they'll have time to process that and be like, okay, wait, that doesn't make much sense. It's it's not exaggeration at all to say that, like, your plans can change in a die roll. Oh, yeah. If if you have uh, maybe, like, a magical... Like, like maybe uh, uh, some magic items, some loot stashed kind of like in a secret spot, and you give your party kind of hints as to, like, where it is, and, I don't know, maybe in a... Kind of a short side in this, you put a a quest item in that stash, and then your party might just never look at it. Mm -hmm. They might never see the hints that you're dropping. They might be like, "Oh, that's a trap. I'm not going near that." Mm -hmm. Or, you know, uh, X Y Z. We're going this way. Um, so it's very important to have backups. Don't be super into your own notes that you don't. Um, get your own points across when the party doesn't follow what you want them to do because it's when you when you have five people in a room and one person is telling the story and then another person's like i i crit the door what, what does that do you know yeah how does that affect your story from here on out is it supposed to be a stealth mission and now they've compromised it and alerted all of china to their location and then uh that that brings up that uh 
depending on how you want to run your campaign, there needs to be adequate consequences for the things that players do. Because oh, yeah. They will do things that you never would have imagined. There are five different, as you said, there's five different brains in the room. They'll, they'll be thinking of things that you never would have considered. And that, that happens so often. It's like a lot of DMs, when they get into it, are like, they fall too deep into the rule of cool, mm-hmm. which it, it, that's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. It's the like, rule of cool is important. It's very important, but you can't get so drunk on the rule of cool that you just let your players run with the story. So, like, if you have... This is very common, especially for new players, is they'll want to steal and kill every NPC that you throw at them. You've, you've got your murder hobo parties. Exactly. And if you don't have a guard step in and, like, arrest them or find them or even hurt them... um they're going to keep doing that in every single campaign they're in. You have to condition them to be used to uh, uh, actions have consequences. You can't just you can't just throw a watermelon at the king and not expect to get imprisoned, even killed for assaulting the king. Exactly. It's it's very much like you need to make a believable world, and yep. just like in our world, you know, there's consequences. Um, and I, I, it kind of helps with that suspension of belief, mm-hmm. I guess. If uh, like, if you throw a watermelon at the king, it's like, okay, make me uh, an athletics check to throw. And they throw, and then you make, like, a secret roll of the king's dexterity. Yep. And, like, they get a really good throw, and the king, like, sees it and dodges out of the way. Yeah. And suddenly their action is completely moot. Well, and, and even something like that can be the difference between if they roll really well and they hit him, they could be executed for that. If they roll really poorly and they miss him they could probably they'll probably be imprisoned and fined but since they didn't actually hit him like it kind of depends on how you want to roll with it but also don't overcompensate don't be like oh they said something cross about the king unless it's a plot point that the king is just kind of an asshole oh yeah like uh, oh they said something cross about him Uh, he's not just gonna whack their heads off it's it's very much like um, especially with very first time players is giving them the the warning shot, I guess, yep. of like, uh, like guards imprison them, and then they're in prison for like the night, and they don't get to partake with the party in yep. the festivities. Nobody likes having their uh, their faculties taken from them. Yeah. Like that's that's uh, unless you're trying to prove that point. That's something that you should probably steer clear of most of the time, unless it pays off. But uh, taking agency away from players is always the wrong thing to do. It, you never want to breed that DM versus player mentality. No, like, <clears throat> at no point should your party be like, oh, well, he's just trying to screw us over. I'm not trying to screw you over. This person in the game is trying to screw you over. Mm-hmm. Like, y- you have to you have to take out of game and in game completely separately. You have to you have to suspend your mind about that. Oh, for sure. A good DM is never trying to offend or make you angry outside of game. They might make your character angry to motivate them, uh, intentionally pushing at your character buttons, but more often than not, a DM is there to tell you a story and to have you act on that story and change it. So they're, they're not trying to hurt you. They're trying to make things interesting and dramatic. Oh, for sure. And uh, kind of on that topic of... Um, kind of player interaction with the world. Um, the rules that you set in place for the world are super important when just sitting out on a normal adventure. So, like, if you set in a world that has, um, I don't know, very maybe very active magic ley lines that you'd be wandering through the forest and maybe there'll be, like, a magical just fissure. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that happens. It's... it's important with world building and believability to have something that's consistent and something that the players can interact with and uh, a pretty big uh, a pretty big thing on DMing and world building itself is uh, after you've made the world and you're in the process of playing you have to keep in mind that the world that you've set is happening around them as well they're not just influencing the world the world influences them if if this town is in danger and somebody says, hey, I need you to save this town, and they don't save the town, that town is destroyed. Probably for a good reason on the destructor's part. Uh, If orcs are trying to destroy that town, uh, maybe they were looking for something. They found something. It makes them much harder to defeat later on. The world happens around them as well. 
Oh yes, yeah, so it's not just like a, you know, the the actions of the world only happen around the party. Mm-hmm. Um, going with that sort of sense of immediacy is, uh, like you said, with the uh, if they get catch word of a town about to be sacked by raiders, um, is it in that party's best interests then to maybe risk their lives? saving a town that maybe they don't have any sort of allegiance with. It, it might not. They might not have any um, motivation to go there. Um, but if you're placing that quest on them, you probably should have a way to motivate them. Exactly. Um, you you might just have that town there to be destroyed in the first place. Like, they're probably... You make that town, like, this town's going to be destroyed. And they're like, well, why do we care about that? Like, unless they're, like, lawfully good aligned characters well why would we care about that we have no connection to that town oh well um we have word that um your sister is there like she's she's in danger and suddenly they have a reason to go yeah like now the the courier that was sent to grab the party is here on behalf of someone that one of the characters cares about Mm -hmm. or at least should care about you know you want your character's backstories to have an impact on the world itself Mm -hmm. and that's why it's so important to talk with your party before fleshing out your entire world because um all too often is you'll make like this very eclectic pantheon of incredible uh deities and have a very high magic setting and everything is very culturally sound and then one of your party members gives you their backstory and they are a rough and tumble pirate and the nearest ocean isn't for 10,000 miles yeah it kind of you have to try to align the campaign with the players but it might just come to a point where you're like hey your your character idea is really neat but we are in the middle of the continent and you've got to come up with a good reason why you a pirate is here in the middle of the desert exactly maybe maybe they were kidnapped you know maybe they were raiding a, a desert dwellers ship they got kidnapped and now they're here you know maybe they have the the deus ex amnesia and uh that that's why a session zero is also important because not only do you get information as a dm and you give information as a dm your players can work together and figure out oh well a majority of us kind of want to go with this style of play um one one person could have gone to session zero like oh i already have a character in mind i know exactly what i want to do but then it end up it ends up not working like you you kind of talk it through and you're like uh well that character doesn't really work but this could be cool like and we could all be this group of people doing this thing but uh yeah your your players can talk to each other too and that's usually pretty good because then as a dm you can sit there take notes kind of behind the scenes figure out how to uh how to implement what the players are doing in oh yeah like looking at character character interaction is something that i don't hear talked about a lot yeah. in the DM space. It's like, like, do you ever take notes about how your party members interact with each other? I often do. Um, I, I usually don't, and I probably should, during the campaign, like, take short little notes on things the players say um, as their characters. Um, I usually do it afterwards, but I think that it would really benefit to do it during the game, because then I remember it a lot more clearly. Um... And that can just give a lot of motivations, a lot of ideas, um, and it can really lead to some dramatic and interesting moments. Okay. And so, uh, going with the go, going back to the player focused campaign is it's kind of an experiment thing that I've done with um, my current party, and I, I, I'm kind of looking for like opinion on it. Is um, do you give your party the entire world at once do you give them a 100% this is the continent you're on um you are starting in x town with y motivation here's where you meet or do you maybe give them like a uh like a a 1000 kilometer by 1000 kilometer section and it's like here's the world that you know Mm -hmm. uh go out and explore see when i built the world that you're currently in in my game um, I do remember specifically trying to split the world up by by area and location, but um, in the process of making that world, I'd kind of decided, hey, um, this is a continental-wide civilization. It's a continental empire. They would probably have pretty decent maps of the whole area, so uh, although your players might not go 
to some of these places, they're there. And they're they're well documented. So for me for me personally, I think that it's heavily dependent on how advanced your setting is. Oh yeah, it's it's important to think about the technology of your world. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of us playing fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, we're gonna be in the sort of like European medieval kind of mindset where it's it's knights in armor and you know rogues and hoods, but like what co- sort of modern sensibilities do they have? Is there a banking system? Is there a centralized government? Are there mayors or governors? Is it uh, a monarchy? Is there a king, a queen? Yeah, uh, like I said, mine uh, mine is a continental wide empire. There's lords. There's um there's regional rulers, but they all answer to the emperor. So there's a universal monetary system. Um, everybody's um, allied with each other. They're all under this one central figurehead. So everybody's resources kind of pool together for the greater common good. It's very, uh, very kind of like European Union esque. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, minus the like head ruler part, but that's that that comes with that sort of uh, European medieval mm-hmm. kind of setting. Um, and when you talk about uh, certain technologies and um, modern sensibilities, something that I've I've personally only implemented once in my very current game is um, more focus on being uh, money-minded with your party. Mm. Um, very often I see parties will just amass huge amounts of currency yeah and they'll just have it and as a dm that's that's interesting but what motivation does that give them to go on other quests that don't involve getting x powerful magic item uh if you can just give them riches you know a lot of times that's enough to motivate some characters Mm -hmm. but if they already have a stockpile then what's the point um so in my current setting i implemented that this section of the map is very um they're very civilized they're Mm -hmm. very much like us modern day people they have they have guilds they have uh local stores they have chains uh they even have like a national bank where their currency is all held and each character gets like a bank account-esque thing so that maybe they're not carrying around you know 300 pounds worth of gold coins in their saddlebags. It's it's interesting to think about of giving your characters creature comforts while giving that sort of like well, what happens to my money once I let go of it? Do I hoard it? Do I spend it now and not risk it getting stolen or lost? It's I don't know. It, it, what do you think about that? What do you think about money and giving it to your party. I will uh, be frank. I am very terrible at um, giving out rewards. I've never been very good at it. I've never been good at metering it out. Um, it's something that I'm really working on. But um, what what I guess I have to say on it is it also depends on how high or low magic you're campaign is because if you're giving out a bunch of gold well what are they going to spend their gold on is there a lot of magic yeah cool i can buy this magical item um at the same time you could bypass the money entirely and just be like oh well you're going on a quest and you find these magic items i I pepper them in or oh yeah something like that um and if you have players uh who have characters that are oriented in this specific way um you can make property available for purchase Oh yeah, that's like it. It feels really good as a player to own a piece of the world mm-hmm. in the world in game. For your party to have a base is a huge. It's a huge reward. I've I've always loved having the base. Like this is my own little slice of this world. Um, it's where I can go to and keep all my stuff. Um, it's where I can kind of decorate out. It's my own little slice of home. And, like, nothing is saying that maybe you don't turn that property into, like, a business, you know? Yep. Maybe maybe hiring, uh, like, thieving children off the street 
which, turning them into adventurers. Or... Which is funny because that's currently what I'm doing in a campaign I'm playing in. <laughs> it's, it's, it really opens up this like can of worms of imagination. You can just let your, uh, your party run wild with it. Um, and I guess depending on how good or bad a line they are, they could make they could make anything from like a thieves guild to mm-hmm. maybe like an adventurers guild or uh, I remember running a game one time I gave the party at a very early level uh, just kind of like a regular wooden house yeah and they turned it into a restaurant yeah that's cool and it's just some money on the side maybe mm-hmm. you know they go out adventuring and then that's they more come mo- back and that's more money for healing potions my bro exactly and. I like that you brought up healing potions because that's where I was going into next with uh because you said that divvying out items and money is difficult because sometimes you might you know give them too much and now it's like oh they can just buy whatever they want and it kind of hampers your that's always my big thing because writing that line am I going to give them too much and it, they just start to slowly appreciate less and less um, but do I give them too little and they're just like well why did I do this like I didn't even get very much for it yeah exactly like we almost died why did I get like 30 gold yep you know it's it's not it's never that severe but um the way I've kind of mitigated it is um, giving them way more opportunities to buy consumables yeah consumables are something I really need to implement more they're they're a really underrated magic item because mm-hmm. like it's it's really interesting when you hand the uh, the barbarian who is just a health bag of hit thing a scroll of healing word, and it's like, you know, maybe the barbarian's up, the the cleric gets mauled by goblins, and now it's the barbarian's turn to use their consumable for the good of the party. Yep. Uh, it's also a good way to give. Uh, classes that don't usually get a lot of spells that maybe they're a little burnt out on just I roll hit dice, I hit thing for damage. Maybe give them a little bit more of like a um, make them think on their turn of am I going to hit the thing or am I going to cast the scroll that I have in my pocket? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting duality between you can kind of bend what classes can do yeah. with it. I, uh, I, I definitely need to use more things like potions and scrolls because I, I have played a wizard many times. Um, I don't think that I've ever been given a spell scroll. I've never received really? a spell scroll as loot. And I feel like that's something that would really excite a player playing a wizard. Like, oh, wow, I found a spell scroll. Now I can learn this spell permanently. Just, that's a little something because, like, like I said, I've played a wizard. I've never gotten a spell scroll. I've always oh. bought them. That's interesting because, like... Uh... I, I very recently kind of uh, implemented this sort of thinking of giving my characters more opportunities for consumables over regular magic items, and to my surprise, they ran with it. They loved it. Like I gave, um, I have a very large adventuring party around seven people. Oof. Um, and two of them went to this sort of dockside, uh, like a like a flea market. Mm-hmm. And it's a very high magic setting, so there's a lot of people like peddling magic items maybe they made or they found. And uh, the dwarf war cleric finds a uh, a bottle, and inside the bottle is a small fire elemental. Who? And uh, they're like level three at this point. And I tell them, uh, oh yes, that is a bottle of fire elemental. Throw it on the ground, and it will summon a fire elemental to aid you till the end of the encounter. And then everybody's like, that's crazy. Yeah, like, uh, the other person in the room who wasn't playing, but he was a DM, he, like, well, his eyes, like, widened at me, yeah. and he's like, I'm level one oh getting God. a fire elemental. That's some, like, 10th level stuff. Um, and I was like, uh... For you, since you look like an adventurer, I'll sell it to you for the low price of 800 gold. Yeah. And he was like, oh, man, checking his coin purse. I only have 150. It's like, man, I really want that. We should go adventuring to get more gold and come back. And they left. They adventured. They came back. And the person at the flea market was gone. Mm. Uh, They took too long adventuring. So... He decides like, oh well, I really want this magic item, and I now have the I have the money to afford it because my friends gave me some of theirs to help buy it. 
I don't, I can't, so I'm gonna buy this scroll of Firebolt or whatever. Something that's non-permanent to kind of, I kind of forget where I'm going with the story, honestly. No, that's uh, okay. It's, we're, we're on the topic of consumables are good. It, it, it's a way to give your party members flexibility in their combats. Yeah. And who knows, maybe that war cleric will find that peddler somewhere down the road and buy that item. And uh, even there, uh, if you don't mind, the recommendation could have been a pretty cool opportunity for more, um, for a more world building scenario where he's like, I'll sell the, you look like an adventurer, so I'll sell this to you for 800 gold. Uh, well, I've only got 150, so the, the peddler goes, well, I've got this thing that I need if you do this for me, mm. then I'll give this to you. Like, here, go fetch me an item. Yeah. Instant side quest. And I'll knock off some of the price. You yeah. know, who knows? Um, and then there's also, like, the third branch of it of, what if this isn't really a bottle of fire elemental? Yeah, the, you're, you're, taking, you're taking your chances on a dockside peddler. Like, what if like. it's just a, a bottle of, like minor illusion yeah you know or maybe like a will the wisp or something that's that's another thing that um i've kind of decided that i kind of want to lean more into as a dm is just because you're the dm does not mean that everything that you say should be taking as the god's honest truth oh yeah like i could say because i i'm i'm not being here like every npc knows everything uh, that i know uh, this this dwarf could be like, hey, like we need to go rescue this person uh, because they're they're the next in line to do this thing, and then you rescue that person. And you're like, we don't know who this person is. Yeah, like, like they're they're next in line to rule this city. And then you rescue the kid and you bring him back, and you're like, the people who are in charge are like, we have no idea who this kid is. Who okay. told you that this person was in line for rulership? Congratulations, you kidnapped somebody. Yeah, you kidnapped a child. Good for you. <laughs> it's it, it it's sort of a double-edged sword in that fact because it is kind of cool to make your players question like you know can I trust this person like maybe I need to roll for insight to see if I, I notice anything a little shady but there's also that sense of like what if they don't know they can roll for insight and now they're like oh god I can't trust anything yeah like I I buy this item how do I know that this sandwich isn't poisoned yeah or it's what well, I think it's called like poisoning the well yeah well that's that's when uh, so the, the first time you would use this technique um, I'm not really sure if this qualifies as like a, a red herring kind of thing uh, as much as just a straight-up deception um, the first time you do it they'll be none the wiser and then something bad happens to them or something doesn't go the way that they were told that it works and they're like oh now I'm gonna be on my toes about this oh yeah and you can like use use them sparingly use red herrings and straight-up deception sparingly but make sure that the party is always being like hold on a second I'm not sure about this. Yeah, I'm not going to take everything at face yeah. value anymore. Nobody should... They shouldn't be taking everything at face value because every NPC is not a god. Like, they're not you as a DM. Oh, yeah. They are themselves. They have imperfect knowledge. Like, they have their own motivations. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they need to offload an item because, you know, maybe it's hot. Maybe, maybe they stole it or bought it from someone who stole it. Maybe you're buying a stolen item of a stolen item, you yeah. know? You're getting yourself into something you don't know if you're not buying from like something you can trust yeah and uh that brings that, that, that kind of brings me back to uh the uh putting your world up as uh are there these seedy back alleys where maybe you can get some things that you can't get other places in the daytime i think that adding a black market um feel to like like major cities like the black market's not everywhere but oh, yeah. i feel that a black market i always put one in my games you might not like for for you guys i don't think you've really ran into something like that but i'll be frank with you there is uh, it'll it'll show up when it needs it'll to. show up when it needs to and it'll be like wow there's like this whole like other world that i had no idea existed yeah it it, it makes your world feel more believable yeah if there's not everybody is goody two shoes yeah it's it's not a polar of this not not everybody is a goody two shoes or the villain. Yeah, this isn't Cinderella like yeah 
magic. There's there there's nefarious things happening. Yeah. Not oh. not everything is the dragonborn and Alduin. There's the random tavern owner who's like, well, get get the hell out of here. Yeah, he's like, leave. Um, and so I guess the last thing I want to talk about is uh, the concept of player overload. And it's that sort of sense of when you're building a world and you hand, like maybe you give your map to your players and they have no idea where to go. Yeah. They, they're just overwhelmed. There's so much to do and explore. And they're like, do I go to the tavern and talk to the, the barkeep? Do I go to the inn and talk to the innkeeper? Like, what do we do? That, that starts from the danger of something that, um, is kind of, uh, a touchy subject for a lot of people is between the sandbox and the railroad. Oh yeah. If you're railroading your players, you're telling them what to do, what they need to do, and God forbid that they stray from that because then it throws a cog in everything and you don't know what to do. I personally feel like sandboxes are the way to go, but sometimes the party uh, needs a little push in a direction. Mm-hmm. You need to you need to sprinkle some seeds of motivation. Like motivation is a big thing. That's that's the buzzword for today, folks. Motivation. Oh yeah. Give them something that entices them to do the things that you're uh, peppering in your story. Uh, the the sort of philosophy I've adopted recently is, it's funny you talked about sandbox and railroad. I like to think of it more of like bumper cars. Like, you can go anywhere in this big area, but you're tethered to that thing on the ceiling. Yeah. You can go wherever you want as long as I say it's okay. Yeah. Um, and it's a good of like giving your party when appropriate the illusion of choice yeah like let them make the decision but no matter what they pick that decision is pointing them in the direction of the plot yeah i I wish that we could uh we could show this sketch because uh i had somebody tell me once when i was asking for advice that uh you can think of your story as almost like a double helix so your, your double helix is going in each way, and if so they stray off this way, it's going to lead them back to the same point. Like, they could split at this point and go up here, or they could go down here, but it'll meet where you need it to go. Yeah, they might just have a little tangent. It's like, a, it, it is the illusion of choice. Um, but like it, It's not tricking your players, it's just what you're doing will affect the outcome, but the outcome is is going to be there. Yeah, it, it's telling your story with their input. It's exactly what being a good DM should be. Is they are there to play in your world, but you are not there to be them. No. Or else it would just be yeah. like six I could just play a, sweaty nerds sitting yeah. in a room. I could just to, play a video game if I wanted yeah. to do that. Like they'd be just listening to someone read Lord of the Rings to you. Yeah. Um but as a dungeon master, you are mostly here to give an experience. Like we mentioned at the very beginning, uh, is they are kind of at your mercy, but in a way, you are also at their mercy. I, I'd say it's about 50-50, honestly. Yeah, there, there's a very push-pull. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, like going even deeper into the... like player DM kind of like social contract there is there's always going to be the player that like wants to destroy your campaign yep there will always be the uh, the like oh you gave me the vague option to go left when you told me to go right I'm going to go left yeah um, and talking about like player consequences and punishment you don't always have to punish that character no maybe that left path is just a more difficult right path. Mm-hmm. It's it, it, you can spin it in literally any way you want. Don't think that as a DM, you are on the railroad mm-hmm. because you're very much like building the railroad as it goes. Uh, that al- that also uh, brings up a pretty good um, issue of if you have one player that's deliberately trying to go against the grain with everything. You as a DM need to be on the lookout for if it's bothering the other players. Oh, yeah. If they're doing something that the other players are not okay with, you need to talk to that person outside of game and be like, hey, not everybody is okay with this. Like, we, we, need, to, we need to figure out 
how we're going to go about this. Which that's something we're going to cover in a later episode is um, is player etiquette and like how you fit your role at the table. Um, it's sort of a very outside D&D um, kind of looking in uh, perspective. It's making it a fun experience in game as well as out of game. Because um, as a DM, you want your players to be talking about the game outside the game too. Yeah, exactly. It, it it gives you the signal that you've done a good job. Like you've 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 given them the fun that they were there to have. If you end your night and your players are saying like, "Oh man, that last encounter was so cool," like, uh, or they're really hyped about this thing that they got, or like they're hyped about going to explore this next thing, and that's e- huge. Even even if they're like even a little disappointed, even. Like, man, I wonder, like, I'm kind of upset that I didn't go down this other path to see what was there, you know. Maybe we could go back at some point. It's getting your players as invested as possible. Mm-hmm. That's and the most important part. If your players are interested, they will come back week after week after week. They will make time in their schedule to play your game much more often. It's it's a wonderful thing. It is. It's my favorite thing to do. It, uh... It challenges me to be creative. Uh, it makes me think about, like, I'm, I'm, I have a huge passion for storytelling and that kind of thing. Um, so it, it really is like the cream of the crop for hobbies for me. It's like you literally get to sit in a room with your friends and just have fun telling a story. Tell stories with each other. It, it's really like probably one of the best hobbies you can have, honestly. Yep. And, uh, so I guess that kind of wraps up um, this part of world building in Dungeons and Dragons. In later episodes down the line, we may talk a little bit more about uh, the topics that we've talked about in this episode and maybe kind of flesh them out, um, especially with if anyone has questions about um, certain topics that we talked about, maybe we didn't cover fully. That will be more than likely covered in future episodes. We have a ton of other topics planned just outside of building the world itself and making the most believable and fun Dungeons and Dragons experience that you can have. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed our show, you can support us by leaving a rating on Area of Expertise. If you are listening on YouTube, a like or subscription is a great way to let us know you want more. This has been AoE, and we'll see you in the next one.